Grove Shirley broke two fingers. And so uh, I think last Sunday was the first beginning of playing again. And uh, we're leaving at the end, of, toward the end of uh, April. Yep. We're going north, and we have some preaching up there, and we have a wedding. And Shirley's going to provide some of the music. So I hope they have good amplification, because with this little obstacle, the sound doesn't carry quite as far. But thank you, sweetheart. That was really, really wonderful. I appreciate it. <clears throat> Those of you who were here last Sunday, and thank you for the invitation, Pastor. Uh, it was a big surprise. We have this Sunday free, and it was a big surprise to have the invitation to come back. That isn't very usual, you know, when you, you preach somewhere and they invite you back the following Sunday. <clears throat> you like to be beaten by the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to try and stretch your mind just a little bit. Beside touch your heart. And besides tan your hide. And besides provoke your will. But <clears throat> it is a joy to be back. It really is because whether you know it or not, some of you are very discerning. And you knew that last Sunday I was only halfway through the message. <laughs> so I really would like to finish this. And uh, if you recall, what I had shared with you was simply that I had started this series on Paul's letters. In other words, there are seven churches to which Paul writes, and each one of those letters has a distinctive message in it. Uh, there are, each one, in some certain ways, have a particular application to the situation to which he's writing. And then as it just dawned on me all of a sudden that I've got all these notes, I've got this manuscript started, and I haven't told you who Paul is, which is kind of strange when you write about the seven churches to which Paul wrote, not to which John wrote seven churches too. So then I got to thinking, what is an easy way in about 12 pages or 15 pages to introduce you to the Apostle Paul? And that's why I started in Philippians 3. Now, there's something that is vitally important. Now, I emphasized very dogmatically, and I think it's very clear in Philippians chapter 3. You do not have any merit which can demand of God salvation. All of us, every single one of us, have fallen short of the standards of righteousness that Almighty God has established. We have all fallen short. We are all sinners. And Paul, particularly, if anyone could lay claim to a religious pedigree that would somehow or other exalt him to heaven before God, and be able to say to God, look at me. You have to receive me. If anybody could have done that, it would have been Paul. In fact, the first part of the third chapter makes this very clear. He has a religious pedigree that defies any comparison with anyone. Now you say, what about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, as I think I may have mentioned last Sunday, the Lord Jesus Christ is in a special category because he was without sin, knew no sin, had no sin. That's why he could become our Savior. Amen. 
If he had sinned, then he would need salvation. But he was the Savior. But the Apostle Paul is a fantastic, incredible example of what it is possible to achieve by human effort. And that has been the teaching of the so-called ecclesiastical established church for centuries. You somehow or other, by your own power, have to make yourself presentable to God. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, very, very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, and 10, it dogmatically and categorically tells you that you are saved by grace, through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the next verse, the next verse, verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, says we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So you have the root, which is God's grace, your faith, and then you have the fruit. And these two should go together. So I think it's very, very important that you finish Philippians chapter 3. Paul has established, if you have your Bibles open, you'll see that the whole thrust of what Paul is saying, I've turned my back on all of my righteousness, all my accomplishments, in order that I may gain Jesus Christ. And that's the essence of it, by the way. Countless, hundreds, maybe even thousands of times, people have tried to tell me, in fact, in England, it's very, very, very common. When I joined the military, and in England, you can only belong to three categories, religiously. You can either be an RC, or you can be a C of E, or you can be an NC. And so you come into the uh, recruitment office, and they say, well, are you Roman Catholic? Are you Church of England? Or are you a nonconformist? Isn't that a nice term? <laughs> Everybody who's not Church of England not Roman, is a nonconformist. And that's the official legal title they use for you. So when I said, no, I'm not a Roman Catholic, I'm not a Church of England, I'm a Christian. Well, that makes you a nonconformist. Don't put down, I said actually, don't put down nonconformist. Conformist. You put down Christian, I said on that list, because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And when you come to that acknowledgement, you see, it's all about Christ, as the pastor said. Our worship service is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there's coming a day when every knee will bow and acknowledge that he is Lord. What a day that will be. So what Paul is doing in this passage, I'm turning my back on all of that in order to gain Jesus Christ. That's the thrust of this. Now let me stretch your mind just for a couple of minutes, okay? Open your Bibles, chapter 3, and notice this. When I gain Jesus Christ, that's the end of verse 8, all of that religious, all of the accomplishments are dung. Wow, what strong, strong language. And I count it all but dung in order that I might gain Jesus Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, if you have God's 
righteousness put down to your account. That's all that's necessary. Not your righteousness, but the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was your substitute. His righteousness is put down to your account by faith. Now what I'd like you to somehow or other grab a hold of here, and this is very, very important. At verse 10 it says, In order that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection out from among the dead. Usually, many, many commentators will take verses 10 and 11 and say, this is something that comes after salvation. If you follow Paul's argument, he's saying, I want to gain Jesus Christ in order that I might be sure of the resurrection out from among the dead. Because I'll tell you this much. If Paul was striving to attain unto that resurrection out from among the dead, I give up. I'll never ever be able to do it. That's not what Paul is doing in this passage. What Paul is trying to do and trying to make you see is when I gain Jesus Christ, I gain God's righteousness. And I gain the promise of the resurrection. So there is no doubt in my mind if I gain Jesus Christ. There's the doubt, see. You have to somehow or other apprehend by faith what Jesus did for you in his death and in his resurrection. And this will guarantee you also the hope of eternal life. Isn't that a tragedy that in English we say, oh man, I hope I make it. Oh, I hope I get that raise. Oh, I hope I pass that examination. Isn't that a tragedy? Because the Greek word for hope means a blessed, absolute, confident assurance. (laughs) That's the Greek word for hope. We use it in a doubtful sense. But if you have the hope of eternal life, you have the absolute guarantee that God has granted to you eternal life by faith. So it's no boasting in what you did. It's what Jesus did for you. But then as a result of that, God expects you to live a quality of life. You see, that's the fruit. That was the root. He expects you to live a quality of life which will truly honor and glorify him. And that's where Paul starts to pick up on this passage right now. Notice what he says after this. He says, not as though I had already attained. And this is very, very curious. And I hope some of you will put up with me here. You'll notice it says in verse 11, attained. You'll notice in verse 12 it says attained. And also drop down to verse 16, it uses the word attained again. Don't ask me. I have no idea. There were 54, yeah, 54 translators who did this wonderful translation version that we have, that I have, that I use right here. It's called the King James Version, the Authorized Version. But don't ask me why they took three different Greek words and translated it the same way every time attained. That's not, that doesn't help me really understand the passage. Because what he is saying, if by any means I might obtain the resurrection out from among the dead. If I gain Christ, I gain it. And then he says, not as though I had already obtained, arrived at, come to a realization of, 
I have already been made perfect. I haven't really done what God wants me to do completely. Uh, There's a real uh, stretching of the mind. Who's perfect? Christ is perfect. Anybody here perfect? Are you ready for this? My wife is. I am. And if you don't believe that, just go down with me just a little bit, would you, to verse 15. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. Well, wait a minute. This is all double Dutch. Forgive me, Shirley. My wife is Dutch. But this is double Dutch. I'm not perfect. I am perfect. Again, it's a little technical, but the word perfect, the the Greek word telos, which is usually translated end, uh, sometimes commentators will say it means mature. But God has a purpose. Holiness. Can you perfect holiness? That's what Paul tells the Corinthians. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Well, there's a goal, there's an objective that God has for you as a believer. The word teleos, the attainment of something, is out there. The moment you're saved, you're not in any sense completely mature in the way God wants you to be. If that's complete 100% sinless perfection then you better get out of here real quickly because in the meantime, somewhere you're going to fall and fail. In fact, that's what, Paul, that's what John said. If any man says he has no sin, he deceives himself. And the truth is not. But if we do sin, and we do sin, then we have a, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who will forgive us. We confess our sins. And he is righteous, he is just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Am I confusing this? Am I confounding everybody? Uh, We are perfect. That's what Paul says a little bit later. As many of you as would be perfect. And Paul has said, when I gain the righteousness of God, I have a position of perfection. Because I'm in Christ, you see. But then God wants me to go further than that. Not sinless perfection. There are Christians who believe that. If you want something interesting, those of you who have a Methodist background, read those very precious letters of John and Charles Wesley when they communicated with each other. And they were saying, they were try, John was trying to say, the Bible says we have to be perfect, and it's so difficult to be perfect. You ought to read those letters, because he's saying, I can't even do it for a year. Well, I can't even do it for a day. Sinless perfection, that is. There's no such thing as sinless perfection among even believers, you see. But there is perfection because God's righteousness is down to your account by what Jesus did. It's a wonderful truth. It's a precious truth if you can only grab a hold of it. But you see, there's something beyond just the salvation. If that's all there was to it, then God should have taken us to heaven right away. But we're still here. So there's something beyond, and that's what Paul is going to deal with right now. You see, he's argued with these religious leaders that they think they are really something. 
He says, if they think there's something, you stand aside and listen to me and let me give you my pedigree. But then he's going to show you that you can go beyond this in the sense that God expects you to go. God expects you to grow and grow and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't expect you to be a baby all the time. He expects you to grow up and be mature as a believer. And you know something else that bothers me? If you're dealing with a young convert who has just come to know Christ, don't expect to have a fully grown Christian on your hands, spiritually speaking. Be patient, be tolerant. But if he's been a Christian for 20, 30 years and he's still acting like a baby, if that acted in the psychological realm or in the physical realm, you'll say there's something wrong with that guy. We gotta get that guy to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, there's something radically wrong. But there are some believers, in fact, and I've gotta be very, very careful here, because I'm right on the realm of judging. There are far too many believers who are so emotionally wrapped up in the charismatic movement that they think they've already arrived there, wherever they're supposed to be. And their lives belie everything they're saying. How do you know that? Because I was a Baptist for a little while, and I joined the Assemblies of God. And I heard teaching there, wonderful Christian people, desires of witnessing all the time. But somehow or other, they fooled themselves into thinking that they were sinlessly perfect. And after a few months, I had to leave them. Because I could see all kinds of glaring inconsistencies in their lives. So I knew there was something amiss in everything that they were saying. Oh, for God, please forgive me if I'm offending and upsetting someone in this congregation this morning. Think about it and be a Berean. Search the scriptures to see if what I'm saying is really so. That's what the Apostle Paul tried to do. But notice what he says right here. He now goes on and says, not as though I had already attained, arrived at, or because I have already become perfect. You see, you're changing that. You're not reading the King James Version, but I am reading the Greek. And the Greek, he uses a perfect tense. And what he's saying is, it's not because you have already been made perfect. You see, when you came to know Christ, you're positionally, God sees you in Christ. And if it's God's righteousness, how many times do I have to say that? That's put down to your account That's perfect righteousness, which is wonderful truth. You didn't deserve it. That's why it's by grace, you see. And it's a gift. But God sees you that way in Christ. He accepts you in the beloved one. It's a wonderful truth. But now he's going on to say, it's not because it's over and beyond that. There's something beyond that that Paul expects of the believer and he says, if, if I might apprehend, if I might lay a hold of that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. One of the interesting things about the, the job I had in the military was they, they taught me a, a phrase. Uh, I was in a, a branch, a special branch of the, uh, the military police, <clears throat> and I had to do it quite often. I could go up to a soldier, particularly British soldiers, I wouldn't want to do it to the American soldiers, but I had American MPs with me and Italian police too. 
And I could say to them, I apprehend you in the name of the queen. And you say, that's nonsense. Well, that's what I was supposed to say. In other words, I'm arresting you in the name of the queen because of the position I have. So what Paul is saying is here, in order that I might apprehend the purpose for which Christ has apprehended me, God saved you for a purpose, you see. And that's what Paul wants. He says, I want to lay a hold of that purpose for which Christ saved me. Brethren, now you see, he changes a little bit. He says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I haven't really fully arrived there yet. I'm still growing. And if Paul is still growing, I better be still growing, see? And let, let us all be absolutely honest before the Lord here. Lord, I haven't arrived yet. Haven't you seen that wonderful little plaque? Be patient with me. You know, God's not finished with me yet. I mean, that's a wonderful, wonderful statement. And then he goes on, Brethren, I count on myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There is a prize. There are rewards. They do not save, but because you are saved, God blesses you. And you do have to answer, by the way, before the judgment seat of Christ. Which is a truth that some of us have a real hard time with. But it's taught in the word of God. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect. And notice these next couple of words. Let us be, and he's going on to say, be thus minded. Let us have the same attitude as I'm trying to share with you. Because, guess why? He's going to tell you in a moment. Because sometimes otherwise mindedness. Is that an English word? Otherwise mindedness? Yeah, I guess it is. Otherwise mindedness can creep in. And it does creep in. But Paul wants us to be thus minded. He wants us to press toward the mark for the prize that awaits us, that Christ is going to give to us as a result of the work he's doing within us. Oh, and what a wonderful... He goes on even further and he says, Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And this this is a promise, a wonderful promise. And if in anything, notice this, And I'm reading from verse 15. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. God works in your life. Right now. If you're a believer, if you're a child of God, he works in your life right now. And if you are thus minded, even among believers... If those two believers are thus minded, God is going to work and reveal even unto you. There's no real justification for true believers to separate. Oh boy, this is a terrible doctrine. There is no biblical basis for denominationalism. I said it, I said it, I said it. The loyalty that we sometimes bequeath 
to our denomination is not scriptural. If you think it is, I suggest you read the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. Because it's not honoring to God. I don't care if they're a Baptist, a Methodist, a Presbyterian. I don't care what they are. If they're a believer, we are the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And if we are thus minded, we're going to get along. This, another bad word, this is true ecumenicity. When true believers who love the Lord get along together. I'm not talking about organizations joining together. I'm talking about true believers in the Lord being thus minded, God intervening when there's otherwise mindedness coming in and revealing it unto them. What a wonderful experience that is to have that. God works in your life, by the way. He still works in your life. Experientially, he's going to work in your life as his child. What a truth that is. Sometimes we are, without knowing it, anti-supernatural, if there is such a thing. We don't allow the truth that God is still working in our lives today and that we are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at just the ending of this passage. And Yep, oh, it's too, oh time of the clock went. Because there are a few other things here. Notice how sad this is. First of all, he says, Be followers, verse 17, Be followers together of me and mock them which walk so as you have for an example. There are believers who are more mature, who are leaders. Look at them. You can emulate them. Paul says, imitate me as I have imitated Christ. And then he goes on, and this is the sad part, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Are you telling me, pastor, that it is possible for a Christian to be the enemy of the cross of Christ? Sad truth that. I taught a Bible class once up there in Illinois uh, and I couldn't believe it. Uh, I'm trying to think of an easy way to put this. But uh, libertarianism is a political idea too, but it is also a spiritual doctrine or licentiousness. You know, I don't know if you've ever run into it, but in that Bible class, I couldn't get over it. Now, listen to me carefully here. Uh, I think smoking, by the way, will ruin your health. Finally, the federal government woke up to that about 20 years ago and realized that smoking is dangerous for your health. As a pastor of a large church, I had, in fact, every member of the church, I think, used to smoke when the church first started. I never preached against it, but I did preach, by the way, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I did preach once in a while, not about smoking, but I preached about drinking 12 cups of coffee every day, which can do a lot of damage to your body also. And you have to be careful. And it was amazing how God worked in that congregation. Because I think an overindulgence in alcohol is contrary to true spirituality. You might disagree with me. But I taught a Bible class in Illinois in which you all know what rednecks are, don't you? Well, we have them up north. 
And they came into this Bible class, you would not believe it, T-shirts, jeans, cigarettes somehow tied under their T-shirts. They're clever the way they did it, you know. They were all claiming to be believers. And this is what they said to me. We can do anything we want because we are living under grace. And they really believed that. And I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. And all I could think about was the passage in Romans where Paul says, should we then continue in sin that grace might abound? Never, says the apostle Paul. Oh boy, I'm meddling now and I'm touching where you shouldn't be touching. But the inconsistencies are never there and nevertheless still there. Because Paul says, nevertheless, many walk of the, uh, the enemies of Christ. You see, because the cross of Christ has an impact upon your life right now. Right now. Whose end is destruction. Oh boy, it couldn't possibly be believers because I believe in eternal security. But it could be if you understand this to say their lives are total waste. Because what God wants to do in them and through them is not being made possible by their lives, by the way they are living. Oh, love me, will you, and pray for me? Because I know some of these truths are hard to take. But they're there in the word of God. And let me just bring it to an end because it, and this fits the story I told you right at the beginning. <laughs> for our conversation... Our citizenship right now is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what Paul is saying in this passage? You know, I just told you about the Irishman and the Scotsman and the Welshman and the Englishman. Have you ever read that book, The Ugly American? The braggadocia of Americans overseas can be a pain in the neck. You won't have me back anymore, will you? <laughs> it's possible in London, for example, to be standing on the street and say, he's an American, she's an American, he's an American. Just by looking at the way they walk, they seem to own the place. Now, I understand it now, and I understand the American culture. And it's so different, diametrically the opposite of the English culture. So it hits you between the eyes when you see it. Now what Paul is trying to inculcate here is this. You are all citizens of heaven. Do you know that? That's where you, right now, your homeland is in heaven. And you ought to live like it. And people sooner or later ought to detect that. One little story, I may have shared the story with you, but I remember working in Italy, this is years after I was in the military there, but I remember very, very vividly thinking, and I got them from Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, when he went to China, did something that no missionaries had ever done before. He started dressing like the Chinese. An Englishman putting on the garb of a Chinaman. And he was severely criticized for that. Well, when we got to Italy, I remember talking to my wife and saying, you know, I think I better go in and get an Italian suit, get an Italian haircut. And I said, I think I better make myself look like an Italian if I'm going to. And they have beautiful clothes. They're very gifted people. And you ladies probably know the, the women are, phew. I mean, if they only have one dress, it's a beautiful, beautiful dress, I can tell you. 
So that's what I did. I, had, I happened to meet two Christian brethren who were tailors. And I told them I, I wanted to look more like an Italian. So I got the haircut. I had a lot of hair back then in those days. <laughs> and, uh, and I had them make me a suit. And I felt so good, you know, I could go into the bars, the restaurants, and I could witness. And I'll never forget going into this bar, which is a coffee shop. The coffee shop's called Bar over there. And order a cappuccino, per favore. And I remember these two old guys sitting on the table looking at me and saying, Louis Amolto and Gambe, there's a guy who really knows what it's all about, you know. They, they, they were saying nice things about me. And the one guy turned to the other guy and says, Ma guardi le scarpe. Which meant, but look at his shoes. <laughs> I was wearing an English pair of shoes. Well, Italian shoes, they're experts. The women make, they're very expensive. They, they make handmade shoes. and The men's shoes are beautiful and so forth. I forgot about the shoes. And they knew that I was not an Italian by my shoes. Now, that's a very foolish illustration, maybe. But do people know that you're a citizen right now of heaven? Do they? And can they detect that by your behavior and by the way you dress? Oh, boy, am I on dangerous ground. I can't get over the fact that in all the churches I preach in, the pastors come as though they're going to work in a, in a coal mine and preach from the pulpit. I just can't get up. In fact, in, the, in Holland, Michigan, Dutch background, I can't get over the way everybody dresses to go to church. Dressing the correct way will impact your behavior. This is a psychological fact. And yet there we come, dressed like tramps, including the pastor, by the way. And I remember when my dear friend Norman Gidney was here, he actually said from the pulpit, when we go to England and I make arrangements for you to go visit the Queen, how are you going to dress? No more needs to be said, see. And the point I'm trying to make is every aspect of your life is under scrutiny. But you don't do it out of a legal set of mind. You do it because you love the Lord Jesus Christ. And because you want to be people to be attracted to you so that you can introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ. This means your behavior. This means your talk, your speech. You don't have to have an accent. That's not the point. But it means that in every way, God is working in you and wants to work through you. And so you have to be the vessel of honor unto him. And that's what Paul is saying. So he's saying, you get saved by what Jesus did, and this is the quality of life I want you to live as a citizen of heaven. Think about it and pray about it. Shall we do just that right now? Bow our heads and hearts. Our Father and our God, we are in thy presence through the merits of the one who made it all possible our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. And our God and our Father, we would pray that these words, as they become the meditation of the hearts of these dear people, that these words, especially from the Apostle Paul,
would strike home and have meaning. And that we would leave this morning thinking, oh, our minds were stretched, yes, but our hearts were touched also. And because of that, there's been perhaps in a very vulgar metaphorical way, we have had a, a little paddling going on too and a provoking of the will. And may we be saying, oh Lord, help me. Help me to have that quality of life that would truly honor in every way and glorify thee in my daily walk. We ask this in the name of the one who made it all possible, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.